0: lunch together so I I think that's happening I think you'll hear about it again at the end so gonna be a ton of fun but man what a great morning and let me you know I chew on different stuff throughout the week sometimes golly I I have got dad humor this morning really bad I just wanted to say sometimes food sometimes thoughts but (laughs) nobody ever thinks dad humor is funny apparently so it's good anyway thank you Sabrina Sabrina laughed um but some, some of the things I've been thinking about this week that I'm really grateful for is just the gathered body of Christ. And we were talking about it in our transformation group this past week and, and, and one of our hearts is that as we come together as a people, you know, and some, some people in here are Christ followers. They have they have come to that understanding of that that need for Christ, need for a savior, the need to repent and find redemption in Christ. Some are kind of seekers along the way, some are skeptics and Our opportunity is to come in here expectantly, and we were talking about just if we could describe what we would love to see, this gathered expression of the people of God, we would love to to see it be personal, passionate, and and one of pursuit, And, um, and thinking about what that means and what the implications of that are, it means that it's not up to these guys to make God good. It's not up to these guys or anyone else that's up here in front to make this a meaningful time that we each have the responsibility and the opportunity to come in and to respond to our great God, of course, hopefully continuing a posture of life. But there's something God has commanded us to come together as a people, and there's power in the unified lifting of hearts. And voices and lives, and so let that be your prayer as you go out and chew on stuff throughout the week. Let that be your prayer that that would be. I would love for that to be one of our identities, I, and, and we see that growing in us as we as God roots us deeper into this community, into one another, and into Him. So that this would be a time of a personal response, a passionate response, and one of personal pursuit. So freebie, free commercial, whatever you want to call it, but just something that I, it was on my heart. Wanted to share it. We're thankful for, for this morning, the guys led very humbly and passionately and personally and it was very uh, evident that there was worship personal worship happening up here and it was something that I could if I if I didn't know what else to follow I could follow their posture so thankful for that and so that's our hearts and so before I say anything else let me pray and we'll get into our text for the day God we love you thank you for this morning thank you for a place to gather together Lord just as we are each one of us and Lord, just as we are, you accept us. You call us in, in the midst of our need, in the midst of our filth, in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our victory, in the midst of our celebrating. Wherever we are, you invite us in. You accept us, Lord. And we thank you that you don't just leave it there. You don't leave us there, but you also, you, you transform us. You lead us in your truth and in your way, God. And we pray that we as a people would be a people that have that same heart, God, that we, that we, in your love, we accept fully. But in your love, we also speak truthfully, knowing that it is your gospel, your truth that transforms. God, this morning we come to your word with humble hearts, expectant lives. Lord, desiring that your work will be complete in your word. Lord, that you would be glorified in us. We would know you more, and we would look more more like you, and we would be able to build into one another, Lord. So we submit our lives to your truth. Lord, knowing that it's good, even when we can't see it in our limited wisdom, in our finite knowledge. So God, be glorified. Speak to us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as we have been kind of really all year, minus a couple of breaks. This week, we come to uh, Jesus' teaching on the topic of divorce. And, um, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a touchy topic. Um, before we kind of get to that, I want to review a couple of key concepts and dynamics, once again, just to make sure we have the right footing underneath us and the right momentum moving forward. And some of the things that we've seen and some of the things that we know from the previous teaching of the, of the teaching leading up to this point of Jesus's sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, again, Jesus's first and longest recorded sermon in scripture. Again, if, you, if this seems important to you at all, this, this, this Christianity thing, this pleasing God thing, this glorifying God thing, living out what it is to be his children, we, we should definitely say that if Jesus taught it, it really matters. So that's why we're excited to be in this. Uh, For for those, uh, and as we think about the Sermon on the Mount, he's really, it's the teaching of the kingdom of heaven. And for those that are in Christ, we are made citizens of that kingdom. It's a promised kingdom to come where all is fulfilled in Christ. It's also a present reality where the people of God live enjoying the, the redeemed riches of God. Uh, and so we're teaching that, the, the, and as we looked at the Beatitudes in the first few verses, it is first and foremost a description of the person of Jesus, but with that being said, because when you surrender your life to Christ, you also take on Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the character of God comes on you. So then we are also looking at the characteristics of the people of God, of those who are in Christ. So the Beatitudes are first and foremost pointing to Jesus, also describing us as the people of God, citizens of the kingdom. So as Jesus moves on from the Beatitudes, he, turn, he kind of continues teaching his disciples, the church, the people of God, what the kingdom life looks like. And again, it's not what it looks like because in our effort, we make it look that way. It's, it's what it looks like because it is an expression of our new identity in Christ. So when we think through the Beatitudes and it's the poor in spirit and the, and the meek and the merciful, it is not you are, it's not that you do these things so that, it's you are poor in spirit, so it exhibits in your life. You've been shown mercy, you're made merciful, so it's shown in your life. Again, it's that idea. And then we see, again, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, to, but to fulfill it. When we talk about the law, we're talking about all of Scripture that was there before Christ came. The Psalms, the prophets, the law, that's what we're talking about. Jesus came to fulfill every bit of that. The Pharisees and the scribes at the time, the, the, the Jewish leaders and the teachers had taken this old law, the old covenant, and they had misused it and misinterpreted it and to misuse it for their gain by diminishing the strength of the commands and by extending the bounds to, to make for greater allowances so that they could then define a righteousness that could be attained by their effort. And so, again, if we're living to to, to live unto a holy God with a holy and righteous standard and we're called to that, it would make sense that we have diminished his standard if we can attain it by our own effort, which is what they've done and which what Jesus is now coming to turn on its head. And then maybe you've heard the Sermon on the Mount described as counter-cultural and the culture, the culture demands something that is controllable, attainable, confinable. So Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Because God is infinite, and his truth is infinite, and his wisdom is infinite, and his standard is beyond measure, cannot be contained. It cannot be attained by man's efforts, but he brings the good news of his attaining for us. So over and over again, as we've looked at these teachings, we see that Jesus is taking us beyond the letter of the law, beyond just the, the little words into to the spirit of the law, and to the heart of God, to the very express character of God in his law. And we will see this once again today. It's the same thing repeated over again today. And if you've been here for the past few weeks, we keep, and as we talk about the extending of the bounds of the law, extending it beyond what God allowed, we've we, we referenced divorce every week. So here we are now in this text. And so as we come into this, I mean, you already heard me say it. it is a, it's a difficult topic. It's difficult. I mean, it's difficult for a few reasons. Divorce, divorce is hard to empathize with. For those that have been through divorce, it's also it's difficult for not to become your identity. I mean, I've, I've talked to people that have been through divorce, and, and one of the things I always hear is I never thought this would be me. I never thought I would be that guy, that girl. And it's hard for it not to become your identity. You know, who, who, anyone that ever gets, that goes into marriage, they don't dream of one day having it all fall apart and crumble underneath them. They dream of marital bliss for all of life, and they say our honeymoon's never going to end, right? I mean, that's what we all desire. And so it's, it's hard it's hard because it becomes an identifier. For those that have never been divorced, it's, it's difficult to fully comprehend the depths of the hurt experienced by someone who's been divorced. It's just, it's just hard to fully identify. As much as we would try to empathize and have compassion, even for children of divorced parents who have not been through divorce, it is just hard to fully comprehend the depths. Divorce is confusing. I mean, if, again, the world around us, the culture that so often tells us what truth is, says there's no problem with it. You know, you're overreacting. It's, it's basically the way the Pharisees were looking at as we'll see. And also, if you grew up in the church, you've probably heard a myriad of different kind of boundaries and lines and teachings on what is what is okay for people, when is it okay for people to divorce? What is God's standard for marriage or divorce? And we've heard kind of different convictions on that. So it's confusing to that right too. And then lastly, it's a tough topic because it's just, it's just painful. Divorce is painful. It'd be hard to find a pain that is more acute than that of a broken and toxic marriage. And so for those that have been through that, again, when they gave their lives to one another, they gave themselves fully, they gave themselves vulnerably, and man, a a toxic and and broken marriage— It's painful for that reason. So then, if that leads to divorce, the pain is there, and then I really can't think of a more tragic picture than that which God intended to be together forever, never able to be torn apart, to be torn apart. So again, it's painful. And then it's personal. It's hard to think that anyone in this room has not been touched by divorce. And so as we see much times in, 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 faithful, in the faithful, convictional Christian world, those, those doctrines that we often have a hard time with are the ones that, that are emotional in nature, that is personal. And we start thinking about the way that it impacts those we love or it impacts ourselves, it seems like it's denying a right that we deserve as, as a beloved creation. So it's just hard. And so we can acknowledge that. And with that being said, I want to be really sensitive today I don't want to add to the pain. I don't want to add to the shame. But as you hear it in our core values, we say that we have to submit to the full authority of God's Word. We trust the Word of God. We trust that it was given to express the fullness of His character. And what is the fullness of God's character? Part of it is that He's good, He's loving, He's kind, He's true. And so when we come to his word today, we can come trusting that. And so not in order to inflict pain or shame, but in order to find hope in the, in the unwavering, unchanging truth of God, we come to submit our understandings to that today because we can trust. And then we also know that in submitting to that authority of his truth, we also only find true freedom there. And so we don't want to attain, a, again, just like we, kind of what we were referring to earlier, we don't want... A freedom that just exists in our definable reality. We don't want a freedom that cannot be explained. And that freedom only comes through and under the truth of God. So today, let us just prayerfully come to the truth of God, acknowledging that it is the very expression of his character and that he is good. His intentions are better than any of ours could ever be. His wisdom is better than any of yours could ever be. His understanding is deeper than any of ours could ever be. So we come trusting that today, prayerfully saying, God, I don't come to your truth to validate my understanding. I come to your truth to inform and transform my understanding. So let that be our posture today as we come into a, a teaching and a text that has been, that is difficult, and let us just trust the Lord. And so I want to pray one more time. I want us to pray one more time, and I'm going to ask, ask you to pray for me today, to teach with clarity and conviction. I also want to pray for all of our hearts and minds to be humble and open to God's teaching. And then we want to pray that we would not try to prove, like like we just said, our understandings by his truth, but have his truth transform and inform our understandings. So I'm just going to let us sit in silence for a moment, and you pray those prayers, and then I'll close us in prayer, and we'll get to our text, and then we'll continue. God, I know there's really more need for that space to pray the prayers we just said we need to pray. But God, just in our hearts, I pray that there would just be humility. I pray that we would come to your word with you in view. Lord, surrendering and crying out for your understanding, for your truth. Lord, trusting all of what we have, all that we are, all that we know to you. So, God, be glorified through this time. Speak through me or in spite of me, but let your work be complete. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're going to start in verse 31. Um, I had originally intended to teach all the way through verse 37 today. We're going to look at just these couple of verses, 31 and 32. Um, So... uh, if you have a Bible or an app, feel free to turn there. If you need a Bible, there's one underneath you, there near you, under a chair. Uh, feel free to use that Bible. And if you need one, we would love for you to take that. That's our gift to you. Okay. It's also on the screen, I think, if we need it. So we'll start right here. We're gonna read both of these verses, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. So Jesus is continuing. This is a, a continu. So last week we talked about we talked about lust and how if you've lusted after a person you You've, it's the same as committing adultery, and it's just continuing that same, that same, the same thought, that same truth of, of, again, God is more concerned with the heart and the mind, and, and so we continue. It says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this is a pretty short teaching, and it seems like there has to be more to say. And I will say that Jesus does teach a lot more on divorce. This is more of an abbreviated summation of a later teaching. So we're actually going to hold these passages next to another teaching from Jesus later on in Matthew, Matthew 19 today, to kind of help this this longer text, help us interpret this shorter text today. So so we're going to turn to Matthew 19 three through nine. So it's a very similar context, Jesus teaching, and he's teaching actually to the Pharisees here, and you'll see their response. So Matthew 19, three through nine, we're going to read that. So this is the longer teaching on what we just saw as a very short summation. So here we go. It says, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. So as Pharisees coming to Jesus, they said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, So, here we see the Pharisees came to Jesus, and they wanted to test him, and they tested him by asking about divorce, and they were asking about divorce in the context of known laws at the time and the known teaching, and just for a little bit of that context, at the time, there were basically two schools of thought on this allowance of divorce, and and if you've heard me refer to divorce, you'll hear that coming up, but basically, one was led by this guy named Rabbi Shemaiah. I think that's how you say, I don't know, I'm not great at speaking Hebrew, but Rabbi Shemaiah, possibly, that's how we would say that, and his teaching on divorce was very, very literal to this, to this teaching in Deuteronomy that we'll come to in just a minute, but uh, it's this very stern line of divorce and upholding that it is only allowable to divorce in, if there is adultery or sexual immorality, and then there's this other rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, who had a very lax view. And he had taken this word, it was unseemly or undesirable or indecency, and he had taken that word that we see here in Deuteronomy, we'll see in a minute, that, uh, and, and, and made the laxest definition possible to where it could be defined that it would be indecent or unseemly, again, if a wife were to burn the dinner or if she were to become less attractive than another woman. She was unseemly compared to that woman. And and what the guy could do was then write the certificate and saying, hey, here's the formal thing I have to do. I'm out. I've done what I need to do. So that's the two, the two schools of thought that we see that Jesus is speaking into. And this is what the, the Pharisees were asking him. Where do you fall? Where do you align? Really, they were asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? For one cause, this cause, that cause, or any cause? Jesus, being infinitely wise, did as he often does, and he didn't answer their question. He replied in three parts. So we're going to look at these three parts as we see here in these verses in Matthew 19 to help us interpret Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. So first, we see in the Pharisees' question, they were interested in the allowable grounds for divorce. But we see in Jesus' response that he was interested in the institution of marriage. I think about a phone call I received about a year and a half ago or so, and it was this distraught voice on the phone. And she said, I need to talk to you. I need your help in getting a divorce. And these were both Christ-following Christian couple. And I said, well, I would love to talk to you, but let me just tell you what we're going to talk about is marriage and why you should stay married. And we'll start from there and we'll see. But we see that much like this, we see that Jesus began his teaching on divorce with a right teaching on marriage. That's where he started. So as the Pharisees framed their question for any cause to Jesus, again, he didn't answer that question. He said, he said let me ask you another question. So what did Jesus teach? As he answered this question, as he answered with a question, he said, have you not read... He said have you not read so he takes him back to creation and first we see that he said have you not read that in creation he goes to genesis 127 and he kind of he quotes this we'll read it literally here it says so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female and he created them so we see that in that jesus is is referring to the exclusive nature of marriage it is between one man and one woman and then he goes on to allude again to the foundations here in Genesis two twenty four and 25, which says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we see first the exclusivity of marriage between one man and one woman, and we see then that it is permanent. It is a permanent, it is a permanent bringing together of two, where two separate people have become one. So there is this permanence of this absolute melting together like two colors of Plato. Once they go together, you will not get them apart as they originally were. They just just doesn't happen. That's, what he, that's the picture he's painting. And then even more emphatically, he stamps the reason why it is permanent is not just because of the, the, the intermingling, but because it is God who joins them together. And he says, "What God has joined together, let no one separate." So Jesus first says let's just have a right understanding as you already acknowledge what marriage is. It is exclusive one man, one woman for their life. And because God has brought them together, they should never be separated. So he starts and he's like let's just start with the right view of God's desire for marriage, God's truth for marriage, God's God's design So to summarize what Jesus taught about marriage, we can say that marriage is a divine institution where God himself makes a permanent bond between one man and one woman, which is both internal in their commitment in their hearts and also external in that they leave their father and mother and cleave to one another and become one as this new community of three, husband, wife, and God the Father, bound in Christ. So, as we continue, next we see the repeated pattern of the Pharisees of extending the intent of the law in their response to Jesus' teaching on marriage, right? So, we just see that. So, Jesus teaches that. He says, Therefore, a man shall know that he goes through that teaching, and so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then the, 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 the Pharisees are like, But wait, but wait. Why then did Moses command to give one? command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away they're like no wait that's not what Moses commanded they call him out the next thing Jesus addresses is that the Pharisees stated that Moses's provision that that he allowed they stated it as a command they stated it as a command. Jesus called it a concession to their hardness of hearts. Let's look at what I'm talking about. That'll make sense. So first, I've referenced it a couple of times. Let's look at Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. All right, it says, that, and this is the law that the, the Pharisees are referring to. It says, when a man then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay, so huh. so in the emphasis of Jesus' teaching as well as the rebuttal of the Pharisees in their question, the form of their question, we see that they had placed the emphasis and the importance on the giving of the certificate. They were like, well, hey, as long as we give the certificate, we're fine. That's, that's what they emphasize, and they made it a command. They also referred to that giving a certificate and divorce, both the certificate and the divorce as that command of Moses so first let 's look quickly at those verses the Pharisees were misusing a careful reading would show that this 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 passage is a is a string of, of, of conditional clauses these ifs that we see and that they culminate in one command and not what they're claiming and we see this in this if there is a cause for divorce, and if she remarries, and if then she gets divorced again, and then if that second husband dies, then here's the one command that is in this passage. Then she cannot be married again to the first man. Now, it's a bit obscure of, like, of why there needed to be this command. It could be because of the abomination that it was, and it's just that big of a deal. It could be to teach the husband, and again, for us, the wife, of, of not being hasty in your decisions for divorce, again, because of God's intent for marriage, we, it's kind of obscure of why this needed to be taught. But the truth for us today is clear. There was no command to write a certificate in divorce it was a concession. As Jesus then, as he references this and teaches on it, he points out that the allowance for divorce was that concession. We see it here in verse 8, In Jesus' reply, he says, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And he says, but from the beginning, it was not so. So notice this. Notice that Jesus does not say that the teaching is not from God. Again, Moses gave this concession. He gave this concession as the prophet, as the mouthpiece, as the teacher of God. So Jesus didn't say, hey, no, 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 no. There was no right for certificate or anything like that. But he's saying the command was not from God. See, God created marriage to be permanent, as we already said, and that's why Jesus started there, and it's only because of the hardness of hearts of the people that there is any allowance at all. So again, why that matters, we'll come to why that matters in a minute, but once again, Jesus is calling us to a high view of God, his truth, and is, and, is, and is calling us to a high view of marriage as he intended it, as it was to be in the beginning. He's calling us back to that. His righteous standard does not waver even though the world has fallen, even though you and I are fallen and in need of grace. So this leads us to the last part of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, and we can hold this right up next to our verse in chapter 5. So we're going to put both of those on the screen real quick, and we're going to kind of read both of them. Um, right here. So the first one, this is from our text today. This is Matthew five thirty-two. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then the, the Matthew nine nineteen-nine says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So these are right there, hand in hand, because God such, has such a high view of marriage there's also a, high, a very high demand on the consequence of divorce. It makes sense. It hurts, but it makes sense. And it seems to be assumed by this teaching in, in, in by Deuteronomy and in Matthew that, that someone who was divorced, it seems to be assumed that they go on to remarry. I mean, that would be the adulterous act, the remarrying after a non-adulterous divorce, Right? And so there seems to be that assumption. So this divorce, as far as God is concerned, is is a violence. It's a violence against his character, against his truth, against his promise. It concerns his divine work of bringing two together. He knit two people together, and in that divine bond, that man cannot dissolve. So therefore, a person goes on still bound to that original spouse. So then if to remarry when there they was not an adulterous relationship, they would be committing adultery is what we see. So Jesus does reinforce the exception clause of sexual immorality here in his teaching. He said, let it be said once again that this is a concession of of, of, of God's and not a command." It's a concession from his original intent. So he says, in the case of sexual morality, really quickly, what is that? Just because we like to know, it's that word porneia, which is a Greek word that really encompasses all of sexual sin. And for just for kind of summation purposes, we'll just say the sexual sin is any, any sexual act outside of marriage, outside of the one man and one woman of that marriage. So that is, that's what we're talking about here. And this is the grounds of divorce that we see that there's a concession for. So God is, as we think about this, as we think about what this means for us, and we think about how this gives us a picture of the gospel and a picture of the character of God, we have to acknowledge this. God is always for the permanence of marriage. And in Christ, he's also always about reconciliation. When we think about the purpose and promise of marriage, God gave marriage so that the world could see the very reality of a vital union between mankind and Christ. That in Christ, when there is salvation and redemption, we are brought into Christ and it's permanent because God's grace is sufficient, not our works, because Christ's righteousness is upon us and not our own. And so it is permanent. It is, the purpose of marriage is to give that picture. The promise of marriage is not that it would make you happy, but that it would make you more like Christ. It would make you more expressive of the image of God. And prayerfully in that, we find happiness too. That is our happiness. But it is, the, not, it is not your spouse's responsibility to make you happy. It is their opportunity to refine you and make you holy. So when we think about the purpose and promise of marriage, all of a sudden, hopefully, it's awakening in in you the same high demand of marriage, the same high calling of marriage, and the same attitude towards the destruction of divorce. It wouldn't make sense to really look at it any other way when we understand why God gave marriage and how he facilitates it. We think of the character and the promises of God as we think of marriage. It is inseparable. We think of the sacrifice of Jesus as he laid down his life for his church. Again, we see in Ephesians 5, him, him charging the husband with that of laying down your your life for your wife as Christ did for the church, and the wife is called to a mutual submission. It is a, it is a life of laying down your life for one another. So again, we're pointed to Jesus. And so again, hopefully, we we start... Not recoiling so much at this idea of, of divorce and there being a righteous standard and a consequence. So when we say that God is always for permanence of marriage and always for reconciliation, again, adultery, if adult I mean, I, I would hate to think that adultery happens. I had a two I mean, it's a heartbreaking week. I had two of my really close friends in ministry found out they were having an affair together heartbreaking i mean just oh my tuesday was horrible and i was just broken for them and 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 just broken for their families and then as i was studying this it just brought this all to the forefront and well, i mean i couldn't imagine what it would be like to go through that and i couldn't imagine the anger that i would feel and the violence i would want to inflict and the separation i would want immediately even in that the command is not to divorce you're not, yes, you have the, the right to, you have the allowance to, but it's not a mandatory thing. God is always for permanence and reconciliation. Thinking about that, thinking about, thinking about that, that picture, what better picture of the gospel to the world than that of grace, forgiveness, long-suffering, perseverance, restoration, and reconciliation between a couple who has gone through that, that horrible brokenness to find healing in Christ. What greater experiencing of the gospel for yourself if this is describing your reality than that of grace, forgiveness, long-suffering, perseverance, restoration, and reconciliation? It's horrible. It would suck. There's not really other words for it than that. But man, what an opportunity to see the love of God, the grace of God, the power of God, Transforming work of the gospel and to bring reconciliation both for the two that have gone through that and for the world that lives around them. So, what we see here is that God's truth and judgment are not diminished, this righteous standard remains. There is never really to be a cause for divorce. God's intent would always want marriage. A marriage to, to stay permanent and to stay, to stay in unity and to stay reconciled. But we also see the great need for God's grace and that he gave it. He knew, he knew that this world was fallen and that we're broken and that we are in need. And because of his great love for us and the grace of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of our sin, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can know peace. We can know wholeness. So the standard of marriage and the consequence of divorce are upheld. They're not in conflict. We don't have to do the dance, trying to make it fit. We can can be thankful that God is just. We can be thankful that he is a just judge, and at the same time, perfect heavenly father. Our invitation is to live unto him, surrender to the entire truth of God. To Think about this. Our promise of peace is not being rid of our problems or not being rid of that problem person. Our promise of peace is in the person of Christ and Christ alone. So with that, we can submit our understandings of marriage and divorce and faithfulness to God, understanding He is the only one that will always be faithful. We're all faithless at times, but His faithfulness upholds. And in that, we can come and submit our understandings of marriage. And so if you're single in here and you're, you're praying towards marriage, man, have a high view. Have a high standard. Submit your understandings to God. Don't be hasty. Don't put marriage on the idol. Marriage is not your goal. The life that glorifies God, that lives out his intent for your life, that lives out the relationships that he's given and is thankful in all things, pray towards that. Trust the Lord to, to lead you in that. If you're married, have a high view. Man, live out. Look at the Beatitudes. How can a husband and wife who is poor in spirit, that understands their absolute need for grace in Christ, that, is, that, is, that mourns their own sin, that cannot, be, that cannot be haughty towards their spouse's imperfections, that is merciful. Think about a marriage where that is exhibited, Think about a marriage where that is the bedrock. That's the marriage you want to be a part of. Have a high view. If you're divorced, don't hang your head in shame. There's consequence. We all have consequence for sin in our life, but God's grace is greater. Allow him to shape you, teach you, lead you, restore you. If reconciliation is still a possibility, let that be on the table. God is for marriage. For all of us, again, as we've said today, we want to submit our understandings to the truth of God. So as you pray through this, there's too many nuanced situations for us to try to say, well, in this one it's okay, and this one is not, and this one is okay, and this one is not. Well, what about this? What about that? What about this? We can't possibly cover all that. So today, let's just commit to, to know again. We want to live unto God as the giver of truth and the just judge who upholds a righteous standard and say, because he is worthy, my life is yours, and as I understand your truth, I say yes and I surrender to it. We also know that we live unto God as our heavenly father, and we said this last week, the exact same thing, and that in his great love, he has invited us in to walk in relationship. We walk with a God who knows us and loves us as we are and who has invited us to know him as he is to be known. So, pursue the truth. I mean, submit your understandings and trust that if you just say yes to those things as God makes it known, there is peace there. Again, there's hardship, but there is a promise to sustain and uphold. So that's our opportunity, regardless of where you're at as we move forward. Really, the bigger truth today is that God's truth is good. We face this dynamic across the board Again, there's so many things that kind of tug emotional strings. One of the most prevalent ones today is, is God's view on homosexuality and marriage. And I'll just say this is the exact same posture we have to have. We want to faithfully respond to all of God's convictions and doctrines. We also want to love the people around us. And we, we have a hard time reconciling those things. So just as in, as in this understanding of God's teaching on marriage and divorce and his teaching on, on homosexuality and and any other things like that, our great opportunity is to trust the goodness of God expressed in his truth. Trust that humbly come before. That's the life of freedom. That way it's not on your head. You're not not saying what's right and wrong by what feels right to you, what seems right to you. You're saying here is the right given by God. Here is the truth given by God, our Father. And if he says it's right, I can trust him. And I trust his intent, his will.